Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 280. And this is the last one that's going to be coming to you from my five-ish and a half weeks of traveling throughout Europe. It's been an amazing time. I'm having a great summer, awesome travels, eating lots of good food, seeing lots of cool things. So I'm happy. So Berlin. I know a lot of people like to go to Berlin to party. I'm not a huge party guy. You probably know this already. But I did a lot of cool stuff. So we left the city for a day to go just past like Potsdam to stay at a cabin type of home called the Dutcher, which is awesome. It's out in nature a bit, and we got to swim in a lake that was beautiful. Naturally, I went to see the wall, so I went to the East Side Gallery. I had delicious Vietnamese food. There are, I think, 20,000 Vietnamese, Vietnamese Germans in Berlin. So there's a ton of great Vietnamese places to eat. I was going to say the name of the place that I went. Um, I won't now because I'm going to tell you that when I went online to see reviews of the place and when I was trying to like uh, recall the name of it and just wanted to make sure I had the right place, a lot of people were writing reviews about how mean the owner was to them. But I don't know. I can tolerate a certain amount of abuse if the food's really good and the food is really good. What else did we do? Uh, we went to a bunch of bookstores all around the city. We saw a performance that our friend Sarah was in. Uh, we ate Turkish mussels. Oh, my God. And um, Turkish crepes at a market. Maybe you're like, what is a Turkish mussel? Mussels are mussels. Uh, well, we were told that it's something that's served in Istanbul, a popular Istanbul street food. And the mussels are still in the shell, but they're on a bed of rice. And it's acidic and salty and delicious. Oh, man, really, really good. Uh, we drove the Uban all over the city. We went to the old abandoned airfield where there was this international competition of bike polo taking place, which I've never seen before. It's kind of like polo on a horse, but on a bike. And there's three people on each side. I should have interviewed someone. Uh, I'll try to find someone here in the States because I think there were teams from Austin and California. I'm sure there's someone in New York. But it was wild and kind of brutal. If, you know, if you crash and you're falling off your bike onto concrete. So that was pretty wild. And then I met my guest, my guest for this episode, Arlene Stein. So she's the founder and also the executive director of Terrar Hospitality. Uh, and they curate a symposium in Toronto and they've had it in some other places that brings together producers and farmers and chefs and innovators within the fields of food and hospitality. Really, she's kind of like a lightning rod for curating these symposiums and bringing all of these really incredible people together. Uh, they've had um, they've had programs in in Turkey, in Warsaw in Budapest. And you can find out all that information on her website, which I'll have linked. But I met her at Cafe Frida in Berlin to chat about all this stuff and to talk about her history, working in the food and hospitality industry, talk about food culture in Berlin. She's got an incredible knowledge of the history and the politics of food. So it was, it was great to chat with her. And we had some, some wonderful coffee at Cafe Frida and some really nice crunchy sourdough and some great cheese there. So it was a great time to, to talk to her. It was, she's the only person that I recorded with in Berlin. Um, yeah, and the only one representing Germany from this trip. She's not originally from Germany. You'll hear all this. She's originally from uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. But uh, she's been there for, for quite some time now. So make sure that you go to the notes for this episode and you will find a link to her social media and also a link to the website where you can find out about some of the speakers that she's, that she's had interviewed and people that she's brought together for the symposiums. A lot of really cool and interesting and exciting people. Also go to the notes for this episode and you will find a link to my Patreon account. That is a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get cool kickbacks like postcards from around the world, which you just missed out on because I'm heading home now. But I have stickers and shirts and zines and all sorts of cool stuff that I produce. So if not, please tell a friend. I've tried to bring you a lot of stuff from the road. And now when I'm home, 
I'll be into the writing phase and writing articles again before I hit the road again to head to West Virginia, I think. But more on that coming. All right. For now, enjoy this conversation with Arlene Stein. I, too, sound like a bit uh, groggy, I guess. I'm not a smoker. And we we spent the last two days, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's past Potsdam. And our friend's partner's family owns something called a Dutcher, which I had never heard of. Okay. And he explained, and I'm going to butcher this, but something to the effect of working class families would have. Thank you so much. This looks awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Um, can I have a little uh, milk? For the coffee? Thank you. Yes, please. Um, would have a plot of land, and they'd use that plot of land to make a little house. So it's kind of like a cabin, I guess, but it was beautiful out there, and there's a lake, and we got to swim and hang out, but they're kind of like chain-smoking cigarettes. And since I'm not a smoker, it's just like <laughs> killing me a bit, so um, I might sound out of it. But yeah, Dubrovnik we were talking about yes. is incredibly beautiful in some senses, but then really overwhelming, like especially, I guess, then in the summer because of all the people that are there. And it was sort of hard to parse out food culture. Like there's a Michelin starred restaurant there, I think called 360, like on the wall. Um, but as there is in any place with a lot of tourists, there's a lot of places that say like, here's the authentic Croatian cuisine and have this thing and all those places have the same thing. Yep. And then it comes becomes kind of hard to think, all right, well, where should we eat to have something really good? But I think the thing people forget in a lot of these countries that haven't been typically touristed, I mean, the real drive to Croatia in the last 10 years has been, or five years, has been Game of Thrones. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. So it is the center of um, that show. And it's one of the reasons I'd love to go as well. Yeah. It's one of the oldest um, walled cities, especially in the Balkans. Um but you have to remember, because of the history of um, communism and uh, then sort of they're not destination places, especially for tourists coming from abroad, so North America and Asia. Um, people want to see the classics. They want to go to Amsterdam, Barcelona, mm. Florence, Verona. Sometime, Berlin's only become popular quite recently as well. Mm. Um, but so the, the point is, is that, you know, in terms of food culture, as a tourist, you're going to get exactly what you got. You know, people catering to what they think tourists want because the cuisine of those countries is in the home. Mm. So if you have a place where you don't have a culture of eating out, you don't have restaurants that are catering to anything authentic because mm. that authenticity is happening with Nona and mom at home mm. and during family occasions. Yeah. And so it's, you know, we did a trip to um, Sardinia during the Aww. pandemic beautiful yeah but couldn't find a good place to eat to save our lives Mm. and like really we ate shit um and they do this one um roasted pork dish which is actually their national dish um but it's not served in a restaurant it's served for family picnics in the summer and it's the purview of you know the family gathering and so unless you're sardinian you're not getting invited Mm. so we did end up finding a place that did do something uh really lovely in Cagliari that a chef friend recommended. Um, but as a normal person just going, we wouldn't have found it. Mm. I guess one of the differences with Berlin, perhaps, at least in my perception, is some of the countries that are now post-socialist republics or post-communism are a bit mm, a bit wary and a bit maybe more conservative about immigration into their countries, whereas Berlin seems to be more of a hub of immigrants and refugees and there's tons of Vietnamese rep, uh, restaurants which perhaps is due to when there was still like East Berlin but there's a uh, great diversity and variety here which always makes for good food I guess well that yeah that's a big statement uh. I mean the good food bit has only recently started ah, okay <laughs> probably I would say since 2015 16 but really oh yeah we got here in 2012 and this was not a food city. It was not a place you would find great food. Oh, wow. Um, because it was also a poor city. And so that's another factor in terms of what lends itself to being a good food city. So you have, mm. of course, international influences. You have creative souls, which is you have in spades in Berlin. Uh, but you also need people willing to spend money in restaurants. And um, they weren't up until a while ago. Mm. That's changed a lot, especially in the last five years. And 
apparently COVID didn't have any impact on that because we've seen places like our friends, uh, Cafe Frida, where we are here. I mean, yeah. they opened this place during COVID. Really? And they're, yeah, they're doing exceptionally well. So wow. um, I have lots of friends in the gastro industry that are doing quite well because they're producing quality products and interesting food products for, you know, the current scene, if you will. Hmm. Um, but going back to the idea of, you know, I, I love history and it's so interesting to be sitting with a history professor mm. because it's one of my little hobbies and fascinations and woven into the work that we do quite deeply because I think that it has a huge impact on what you look at when you see food systems oh, and food course. culture. And what people don't realize, and I learned because a Berliner told me, a German told me, Berlin is not representative of any part of Germany. Mm. It's always been a city of transition. It's always been a city of uh, immigrants and occupants from elsewhere. Mm. Um, and if you look back at it historically, um, it's always had waves of people coming from different parts of Central Europe, Asia, Turkish after the war. So you've always had this influx of different communities and different cultures that have added to the richness and the tapestry of the cultural identity of it. Mm. Still primarily, up until recently, a bit Western white influence, mm. um, other than the the Vietnamese and the Turkish communities Turkish, here. Yeah. Um, but more and more because it was such a, in current times, um, because it was such an accessible place to be and such a creative city, you know, that's why people flocked here. Mm. Um, when we moved here again in 2012, um, our street, Brunstrasse, which is one of the main streets that goes through the city, um, you know, there were still squats on our street. Apartments were still abandoned and empty and artists were living in them. Wow. So that's not that long ago. That's 10 years ago. Yeah. And so you can imagine how the framework of the city has changed so dramatically. Hmm. Um, I have a doctor and he lived right on the wall border there. And um, he eventually had, he moved here in 1992, so just after the wall fell. And eventually he had to move because the apartment building had been condoned. And so basically it wasn't worth living in. And so I said, well, how was it in 1992? And he's like, it was dangerous and lonely because it was, you know, the, f the closer you got to the wall in any part of the city, you know, it was derelict and people didn't want to be there. Mm. Um, and so he said, but now there's a beautiful, modern, fancy building that's been put up in the last five years mm. that he couldn't afford to live in. Yeah, wow. Well, I, I should probably preface all this and say that um, it's a particularly interesting time to be talking to you. Obviously, the pandemic had a massive impact on the food industry and the service industry, but also now global inflation, the like, declining American economy has ripple effects everywhere. There's the war in Ukraine. But also because I'm at the end of five weeks, as I was telling you before, and I've been to Ireland, which has a completely different food culture than Bosnia, Herzegovina, <laughs> uh, than, than Prague does. So my typical lens is New York City. It's where I live and experience food. Um, but I'm able to now draw some different connections and comparisons and things and pick your brain a bit. So thank you to JP for helping to uh, make this introduction. I'm very glad to be here with you. Uh, I want to maybe just explain quickly to listeners where you're originally from and like your early introduction into the food world. Sure. Yeah. Do you want me to do that? Oh, yeah, if you could. I <laughs> <laughs> thought you were going to attempt to do it. Um, so I, Arlene Stein, I'm from Toronto, Canada, uh, born and raised. Um, actually, that's not entirely true. I spent most of my childhood in Sudbury, which is a northern Ontario enclave in the bedrock of the Canadian Shield. Um, so I got into the restaurant industry in my early 20s, not because I wanted to, but because that's what we do when we're trying to make money and trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives. And I just stayed. I, um, I ended up becoming a manager of a restaurant when I was about 25, 26. I was always really good at it. I was a people person. Um, the, the struggle with uh, the industry at that time, so we're talking 95, 96, was, especially in North America, is that we didn't take our industry seriously and uh, certainly customers and the people around us didn't take it seriously. Mm. My mother always asked me when I was going to get a real job. Mm. So um, once I figured that I was sticking around, um, I really wanted to um, figure out a way to create a community within the context of the industry so that I could feel better about myself and my job mm. and um, create some credibility around the profession of being in the field of hospitality and working in restaurants. Mm. So I ended up creating a, uh, a symposium that brought people together. It was always about creating community within the hospitality industry called terroir, mm -hmm. um, which is a French word that means a sense of place. 
and it's stolen from the wine industry because that's who created that word. It was mm. the French that decided that you could taste uh, the region of a place through a glass of wine, uh, through the soils and the climate, because that was what was reflective in the growing of the vines. Mm. You know, it was quite popular at the time to be going to wine fairs. They were really invested and they created a lot of community. And I thought, well, if the wine world can do it, which is an affiliate of the restaurant industry, mm. then we can do it amongst ourselves, among all professions of the mm. hospitality industry. So it was a success and people seemed to like the idea of gathering. It was also the time where people were getting more committed to the idea, in North America anyways, of, of the farm to fork movement. Nose to tail, local food, supporting farmers and producers, slow food was becoming big at the time. And so there was a real appetite to try to um, bring together people who were passionate, you know, chef-driven, small-scale restaurants that really wanted to commit to um, the profession of their industry and, and having quality products. And there was a real turn. You know, we started in 2007. Uh, so I'd been in the industry for a while at that point. And by 2008, 2009, um, Omnivore's Dilemma had come out, mm. The 100-Mile Diet had come out. And so people were like, wow, we can really support a different type of industry and different type of food system and have some pride mm. uh, about our products and what we're serving and what we're doing. So it just kind of developed from there. And um, yeah, so we've been doing it for 15 years now. It's interesting because the things that you just mentioned, in, in my mind or in my perception, they're kind of being reintroduced, right? Um, and maybe you could tell me if, if, I'm, if I'm right or not, but you know, farm to table or, or local or going to the butcher is something that people had always done. Uh, but I guess maybe in the post-World Wars year with more industrialization and fast food and trying to make things like super convenient and TV dinners and things like that, is that when we got away from like slow food and farm to table? Yeah, so I think it depends on where you're coming at in the world from it, but I would uh. say the Western world, it, it started with the Industrial Revolution, so mm. it's a little bit earlier than the wars. Okay. It was fueled, especially in North America, as, through the wars, for sure, um, because we created the industrial machine, but actually the agricultural revolution, where we went from, you know, small plot farming, a little bit of serfdom in Central Europe, started with, um, well, it started with the Dutch, and then, of course, it um, developed in the UK. And I can't remember the gentleman's name, but in Carolyn Steele's book, Hungry City, uh, she talks about a specific um, agriculturalist, if you will. He was an economics person, not a farmer. And he campaigned across Europe to convert small-scale farming into large-scale industrial farming to, quote, feed the masses, uh, to produce more food more effectively and efficiently, um, and thereby, you know, reduce um, uh, food hunger and create more food security. Mm. Of course, this idea of, I call it a, it's nonsense, the whole food security thing on a large scale. I'm not saying that people aren't food insecure, mm -hmm. uh, specifically in within the context of city centers and within a, you know, socioeconomic um, community. But uh, this idea that we can't field, feed the world population with our current production levels is complete bullshit mm. because we can. We're just not growing the right things and we're just not distributing them in the right ways. So so that's, you know, we're talking late 17th century, early 18th century when this is happening. This is this conversion is starting to happen. So it goes back not that far, but farther than we think. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and then unfortunately, because everything is driven by economics, you know, you can't stop that machine once it starts. I kind of had that question, right? And I don't want to sound like super conspiratorial um, or even like a defeatist maybe, but there's big money behind like bullshit food. Like here's a, maybe, I don't know if this perfectly relates and we have this delicious food in front of us too. So at any point you want to eat, please eat. But we went to a couple galleries that had shown photography from the war in Bosnia and in Croatia and all the wars of independence from Yugoslavia. And there was this like really striking picture of these people face down in the street who had been gunned down. And this is, in, uh, I believe this was Bosnia. And right behind them is this massive billboard, Coca-Cola, right? <laughs> it's like, so they're now deceased, but Coca-Cola keeps on ticking. And, you know, Coke is not, or Coca-Cola company, whatever the parent company is called, is has been 
known to not be very friendly towards labor <laughs> throughout the years. And so I don't know. There's, there's, there's a lot of money sort of also working against this movement, maybe. And sometimes the culture can push a company in a certain direction. Sometimes they'll make choices that are sort of symbolically making it look like they're doing the right thing. But I don't know. Does, does that ever get you down? Or do you, you know, feel hopeful that we can maybe like course correct some of these big industries? You know, I'm, um, <clears throat> I think the work that we do now and the work that we um, try to do th through terroir is really about changing the world and, and creating a better food system. Um, but I'm very cynical that we can actually achieve that. And um, because of this stranglehold that um, the corporate world has on the industry as a whole, and it's so complicated. Like, even for me, you, know, you look at issues of, like, food security and food justice and then sustainability, so you're taking it from an environmental perspective, and all, those worlds don't often agree with each other either in terms of how to best produce food for the population. Mm. And so when you can't agree in those communities and then you're fighting against the big, you know, corporations, um, you don't... I don't know. I don't think we have a chance. I think the best way to do it although cliche as it sounds, is to obviously vote with your dollars and buy mm. the things that um, you believe are produced in an ethical way that support all the values of sustainability, including the environment, but also, you know, labor rights. But, you know, I don't see it change. I thought it would change during COVID because we'd be pressured into changing it. <clears throat> so you talk about the labor issue. I mean... Food and farming is fueled by migrant workers. You know, in Canada and the United States, we bring up the Mexicans. We sometimes bring in the Asians. Here, we bring in the Romanians. I was curious about that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely, it exists everywhere. You know, I joke with my Polish friends because in here we also bring in the you know the Polish people, and then they bring in the Ukrainians and the Romanians, the mm -hmm. Moldavians. The Moldavians are going to the Ukraine, and then the Russians are. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just it's all a trickle down effect. It's where where can we get the cheapest labor? Mm. And it's interesting to think about when, if we really care, and if the people with money really cared, would you want to be sitting in a restaurant where you knew, you know, that the person who produced your food was living in abject poverty? Chocolate is one of the classic industries. I mean, most chocolate is produced using complete slave labor. And yet, oh. you know, look at Easter, Halloween, Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> we're just eating that stuff up like nobody's business, and we're just turning a blind eye to it because... You know, how do we change it? Well, we stop eating it, actually, is how we change it. Yeah. It, it's, it's, New York's interesting, right, because, well, I guess everywhere, but kitchens, in, kitchens and restaurants in New York City would not exist if not for labor from, like you said, Mexico, Central America, South America. I had been curious. I, I was going to ask you, like, who's in the kitchens here? But that's quite interesting. Um, A lot of Indians and Sri Lankans. Ah, interesting. I mean, there's more than that, obviously, right. but I just was at two restaurants recently, and the cook, one was a German restaurant, <laughs> mm, yeah. and it was chef-owned and operated by an Indian family. Well, yeah, that, and that's what's interesting, right? Like, you can go to a restaurant in New York City, and it's from somewhere in East Asia, maybe, and there will be an Ecuadorian cook, right? Someone told me that most of the Italian restaurants here are run by Albanians. Yeah, they, oh, interesting. <laughs> there you go. So, I guess I wonder... it. it it is very hard to run a, new, a restaurant in New York City, and there, you know, if you make it past three, five years, it's quite successful. There's massive turnover with restaurants and businesses. I don't want to like sound like I'm anti-labor here, but I would imagine a lot of restaurant owners would say something to the effect of like, "Well, I can't pay people more, perhaps." Um, so I, I don't know. Is is there a place for government to step in and to subsidize? these positions, I don't know if that's something someone's talked about or you've thought about. I mean, of course, because during COVID that, that the, the way restaurants have been run since I've been in restaurants in the nineties has always been a farce and it was exposed during COVID. People understood that it was, uh, you know, businesses were built on the backs of cheap labor and cheap food. And nobody was doing anything to change it. Mm. I mean, obviously, we're generalizing here. There are good people who right. are doing good things. But a lot of people, unfortunately, in the restaurant industry go into it 
without a plan. They, they have a dream. They want to own a restaurant. Or they think it's a quick way to make money. It's not. And they do it, again, not thinking about how do we do this based on paying people properly? How do we do it based on paying food properly? Mm. And when they look at what people will pay for food, they're like, well, that's not possible. So where do you cut your costs? Mm. Well, ironically, you cut your costs in a restaurant in your food and your labor. Mm. And that, to me, just doesn't make any sense. I don't know why you would even begin to open a restaurant before you worked out that math. Mm. And quite honestly, I mean, although this is not a popular opinion, and we should have a lot less restaurants. You know, we don't need as many restaurants. I do believe, and it's my business, that restaurants are important for a community. I think that they're the cultural hub of a community. I think that they're a place of hospitality, and we want them as a society. But I also think that they have to be built responsibly, and I think that we haven't done that for a long time. And I think we're seeing the impacts of that right now because what COVID did do is it created a labor shortage because there was a lot of people working in the industry who decided that they no longer wanted to work for assholes mm. for shitty pay and shitty hours. I mean, my daughter's one of them. Mm. <laughs> so, have, do, so then do you think conditions are changing due to that because now there's more demand or no? No. Uh, <laughs> of course. Unfortunately not. I think we're going to have to get to a pressure point. And that, that's a... <clears throat> excuse me. As far as I can tell, that's a... Um, global issue. It's not one area or another. I, I'm still working in North America because we still have our conference there. Talking to people out in Calgary and Vancouver and in Canada, people in Toronto, my friends in New York, and they're all experiencing the exact same thing. Mm. And But the mantra is still the same. It's like, well, I can't afford to pay people more. It's like, well, then you shouldn't have a restaurant. Mm. I mean, if you think about this, we just raised the minimum wage in, in Ontario to 15 Canadian dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. I think if you work it out to a 40-hour week, which is typical, I'm not good at math in my head, so I'm just going to spit out a number. Me neither. But I think it's about 30, $36,000 a year. Plus, you know, take off 30% tax. What are you down to then? 28, something like that. And then probably really high rent. <laughs> An apartment in Toronto, on average, one bedroom was costing about two grand a month. Nice. Yeah. So you do that math. It's... No. You're starving. Yeah, similar situation in New York, right? Yes. And then what's happening, and I've heard this in New York, like the big city centers, you know, what you do is you push the service workers out farther and farther from where you need them. And then the commute is also antagonized, or not antagonizing. (laughs) Like, it's it's just too much for people. And so you lose people there. And then you know what? There's a whole world of tech out there that wants these people. And quite often, you know, you know, service workers are not stupid people. They're often just transitional. And they do have educations, and they do want more for their lives. And so if they find an industry that's going to actually provide that for them, where they get the same outlets and the same creativity and better pay, then they're going to move. And we saw a lot of that during COVID. Yeah. And if you're working in a place where... If you're working in a restaurant, maybe you have a family meal while you work, but in my mind, as a rule of thumb, if you're working in a place where you can then not afford to eat at yourself, there, there's a problem there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're on the road five weeks. Obviously, restaurants are kind of few and far between for us. We can't afford to eat at a restaurant three times a day, naturally. So we go to groceries a lot. And sure. We've eaten a lot of cans of tuna. But um, grocery culture here, it, it at least seems to be like way cheaper than New York. Um, I can buy a dozen eggs here, where which would now cost me like a dozen good eggs in New York City. If I'm going to like a healthy grocery or something, or whatever they label it as, it's like eight dollars. Um, did did you get the perception that things are ch- uh, grocery shopping is cheaper in Europe? For for certain things, for certain yeah. things, not. So, but you have to remember, like a lot of the stuff you're buying in the grocery store is artificially subsidized, mm. right? So, I think the most appalling thing for me when I when I arrived here, because it's such a pork consuming culture. Yeah. You know, I go to the grocery store, and in, in North America, when we left, uh, there was actually a pork crisis, and so we were actually paying uh. like double or triple because the pork farmers were in real crisis and they weren't even making enough money from their animals to support their production. Um, And I came here and honest to God, you could buy like pork chops or loins of pork for like, we have this brand called Ya, which is like a no-name brand. Mm -hmm. And I could get a couple of pork chops for like 
two euros. Wow, yeah. And I was like, I could eat pork all day long. <laughs> or, But then there's other things that are very expensive because they don't produce them here. So I remember we went to like a bio and I was like, I really wanted a steak. And it's hard, especially then, it was hard to get beef affordably. And that's like organic is bio, right? Yeah, bio yeah. is organic. Okay. Because um, it's not really a beef producing country. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I remember going to this, this bio and I was like, I'm going to take, you know, four ribeye steaks, big ones. Like, we're going to have barbecue. And she's like, yep, that's great. That'll be 60 euros. I'm like, I'm going to put those back. <laughs> I'll get the pork chops instead. <laughs> so that was a big shocker for me. But And and milk, like all this like uh, high temperature milk that sits on a shelf, which I was like, how does milk sit on a shelf? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me. So, and it's cheap. It's nothing. It's almost free. It's like they give it away at the, the, the cashier. And the eggs were the same. I was like, why are the eggs on a shelf and why are they so cheap? We've got a visitor here, a puppy. So then I had to learn because I didn't understand. And it was, you know, difficult for me because I didn't speak the language. And mm. so, and figuring out, you know, in, in Toronto, I was part of the slow food movement. I had this conference. I was deeply embedded in the farm community. I ran a farmer's market. Like, I knew about food and farming systems in North America. Mm. And here it was like, nobody knows anything about you. And you thought, I thought, you know, Europeans, they got this down. They're all buying from farmers and they're all, all the farmer's markets you see. It's really cool. It's really interesting. And then you peel away the fabric of that and you're like, oh no, it's all resellers, just like North America. Huh. <clears throat> they're not that connected to the farmers actually because they're working in big ag too. And then one of the most enlightening things I did was actually read the common agricultural policy for Europe. Uh-huh. And I realized that most commodity products here, just like in North America, are subsidized by the EU. So at the time, this is going back six or seven years ago, um, I think it was at 47%. 40% of the EU budget was actually going into agriculture. 40? Yeah, it's been reduced now. I think it's now about 30%. So the the point was, part of the uh, reason for creating the EU in the beginning, peace, collective peace amongst the nations that had been at war with each other for a number of years, um, but food security was foundational to that. So making sure that people had enough food to satisfy their needs was paramount. So so funding commodities was essential. Mm. So think milk, dairy, eggs, grains, um, animals. Um, you wanted to make sure, because starving people are desperate people, and that's just true anywhere. And um, if you look back through history, you know, some of the great famines caused some of the biggest strife mm. in, in, in the world. And so um, the EU wanted to try to prevent that. And so CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, was a, was a protection mechanism to ensure that. But when you start artificially subsidizing commodities, you know, we do this in North America, so if you look at dairy, we just overproduce it. And so when, what do you do when you overproduce something? You have to store it or use it in something else. So in North America, we make modified milk product. And then we put it in everything. Put yeah. it in the cereal, put it in the bread, put it, use it everywhere, make protein powder. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we figure out... But, corn. <laughs> put, put corn, put it in everything. Make glue, make plastic. Yeah. Make, hey, Ben, how are you? Good, how are nice you? to see you. It's been so long. Doing? Yeah, yeah. Podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nice to, to see, see you, though. Yeah, you too. Ben, he's the chef. Oh, cool, cool. <laughs> yeah, him and his partner, Samina, run this place. Lovely couple. Awesome. Yeah, they came to Berlin, met, fell in love, and decided they wanted to open restaurants. So oh, beautiful. Here they are. Now they've got two. Their other restaurant, Mrs. Robinson's, is around the corner. Uh-huh. It's, uh, yeah, one of the good fine dining restaurants in the city. I, I'm, I'm sort of taking us down a different rabbit hole, but one thing I really enjoy about cafe culture and restaurant culture in much of Europe is how you can have a very slow meal and not be like messed with it all or like pushed out and like let's just turn over tables to I guess like just increase profits um this is a whole yes I love going down this rabbit hole because oh it's no am I wrong <laughs> no you're not wrong okay. you're not wrong at all in fact in Berlin it's it's um it's an expectation that you should be able to sit in your seat as long as you want we could sit here for seven hours yeah and well you know they're a little bit different because they're not Germans um, but if we were in a German place we could sit here for seven hours and sip on water if we wanted to all day mm. and nobody would ask us to leave so it's a hangover from the war and communist times and this expectation that once you're a customer it's your right to be and it's your right to have your table 
Um, and it's also a European thing. It's like, you know, if I'm spending money here, you don't have the right to ask me to leave. But for me, I kind of like being asked to leave because uh-huh. I don't want to be held hostage <laughs> while oh, yeah, somebody yeah. forgets to give me my bill for like, you know, an hour. True. There is that. But I guess maybe I'm thinking like, I don't know. It sort of helps you not overeat because uh, you realize you're full. It's slow. You're not like shoveling food down your face and then like rushing off to work. Or it seems to be centered actually everywhere I go, you know, especially like Southeast Asia, like food is is much more of a social activity than it is when I'm home. Because again, I don't know. It's Well, we have the culture in North America where it's perfectly acceptable to eat in your car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. And actually, like walking around with a coffee. Like when we first got here, my husband and I, because we have a dog too. So we would, you know, make our coffee in the morning and take it out with us and walk our dog. And occasionally we'd go to a cafe and give our chipped ceramic cups to the priest and be like, can we have another coffee, please? Because we're going to take it and continue to walk around. And, you know, appalled because, well, you should sit and have your coffee and enjoy it. But I'm like, I'm enjoying it when I walk around the park with my dog. Mm. <laughs> you know, so it's just a different way of thinking about it. But I do, I mean, the eating in your car culture, I mean, that's like, where have we gotten to? It's weird because it's, it's, it's almost thought of as like a noble trait because this person's so hardworking and dedicated that they're just going <laughs> to shovel it in and make it to work. I don't know. Um, I, I'm talking incredibly pessimistically. You get to meet so many incredible thinkers and innovators. What, from speaking to all these people and being at your conferences and hearing your talks, what are you hopeful about and what are the trends that are really exciting for you right now? Well, I mean... The biggest thing that drives me and I get passionate about is uh, the producers we work with. Because I believe in order to change the food system, we need to support the producers that are doing things ethically Mm. and working within the context of good environmental standards. And so, you know, we've had the pleasure of working and meeting so many people who demonstrate that it is plausible to work on a small scale um, regenerative farming level, produce good food, and and feed people. And we need more support of that. And so, you know, the work that I do has always been that the chef and the restaurant can be the most influential in helping helping to support that those producers because they have the capacity to one take them on. And we've seen that over time that you know good restaurants producing or buying from good producers help support them financially, help um, give them the economic stability so that they continue to grow. Mm. Um, But they also become advocates for them. So they become food champions for these people who may not have had champions before Mm. and then start to, again, allow them to develop their business to grow so that they can expand, but also provide a model to say, well, if he can do it, then so can I. And so then you cause, you know, you can start that conversion backwards. And I think that's where you have the biggest impact. As an individual person, it's very hard to to make a difference to try to convince one person at a time in a supermarket, you know, to be buying cheese from a producer that's producing it themselves on their own farm or pork that's produced in a regenerative manner or, you know, wheat that's produced organically with heritage grains in like Brandenburg. So, So chefs and restaurants have a more impactful role in that because they have the capacity. Mm. And we've seen it. I mean, you know, we have a community here called Die Gemeinschaft, which is a collection of restaurants that actually does the educational work to try to support uh, buying from producers and creating awareness so that other people can use them. But it's important that people share those resources and share those that knowledge base as well so that there can be more people doing that good work. Mm. Right? Because... Okay, let me ask you a question. Sure. Our, our, we know our system, we know our food system is broken, right? And we talked about this, about the corporatization and capitalization of it, which is going to be hard to change. Um, and I struggle with this all the time because to change that, you're, you're struggling against the Goliath, right? So how, what do you think is the biggest issue in, in food and farming that could actually shift that to turn it? Like, what is the, what is the cornerstone that we could say, oh, oh, well, if we did this... That would make a huge shift. Oh, gosh. One thing. Well, okay. So 
the larger maybe for me umbrella is education in the sense that like obviously people need to be exposed to things such as like your, your talks are doing but I also think it would be important for all young people starting out with work to work in a restaurant or on a farm over a summer or something like that so one they can see how food is made how it's produced but also how it feels to be working in the service industry especially at the bottom sort of of the pyramid of, of economic power and just see how people treat you um but yeah probably larger umbrella of education with multiple tiers of things included in there if that makes sense <laughs> you know the education is is such a big component of it i mean i'm older than you and when i went to school we still had things like home ec Mm. Home economics. Yeah, I had home ec. They, yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> Where they taught you to cook? Yeah. And it was I had an to essential sew, life sew skill. a pillow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they we did away with that. Alfredo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but the educational piece, as you know, you work in education, that's a complicated one because how do you demand or how do you impose education on the masses that maybe don't even have time? And I did, uh, I know I'm interrupting you, but the other component is. It is really hard to know what to do in today's world because, so I've had a number of people on the podcast from vegan chefs to people who are more on like animal-based diet and grass-fed butter and, you know, both are purported experts in their field. I've had PhDs saying opposing things, citing research-based papers, and I'm like... I'm not smart enough to like parse out what is actually correct here. And maybe it's not a, it, not, it doesn't directly relate to what you're saying, but it is hard to know what is correct in today's world. Well, it's impossible. It's impossible. I, I'm reasonably educated in this field and it's impossible for me to know because it's so complicated and it's so challenging. And finding the correct information. I mean, you can find information for what, whatever you want to believe. Mm. I mean, we saw that with the crazies during COVID. Yeah. Um, so you can justify and find a research on anything you want that validates your opinion. Um, and, you know, take the GMO issue, right? Um, so Europeans don't have uh, genetically modified grains firmly don't believe in it. Any fundamentalists in the good food movement would tell you that, you know, that's the evil Monsanto trying to impose their seed structure on us. But it's so much more complicated than that. <clears throat> so I remember last year, someone was like, and I've seen this actually happen where, you know, we don't use GMO wheat, mm -hmm. right? It sounds like a great thing. Yeah, we're very against GMO wheat. Well, it's, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Right? Like, GMO is not everything. Right. And so... Do you eat bananas? <laughs> yeah. Eggplants. Yeah. So there's only certain products in the world that have actually been approved for food, for human consumption mm. that are actually technically GMO. But then if you dig back farther than that, I mean, GMO is just one form of hybridization, isn't it? Yeah. And nothing we eat, mostly, in today's world resembles what nature created. Mm. The pig that we eat is not that creature that came out of the forests of northern Germany. It was a boar, mm. you know? So, so we've modified things for our own benefit throughout the history of humankind. Mm. So, you know, I always get... It's, it's, I don't know, it's so complicated to dig through those things. So the education piece, yeah, which is why labels work, actually, right? So mm. everyone wants to see an organic label because it just makes it easy. Or fair trade label, right? Even though there's there's problems with that as well, but at least for, for a normal consumer that doesn't want to take the time or cares about educating themselves, it's like, oh, I can be reassured that that product is produced well. Mm. Done. So maybe that's part of the answer, educational components. But I think you have to start with kids. Mm. You know, in the slow food movement, we always said you have to start with taste because huh. well-produced food tastes better. And once you start... You know, when you taste a real tomato that's yeah, produced yeah. in season <laughs> in <Yeah>. Italy, <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, I don't want those greenhouse tomatoes anymore because they taste like shit. Yeah. I, I don't know. No, I think that makes sense. 
I wasn't sure if your question was rhetorical or not. <laughs> well, it's a bit rhetorical because I, I always ask people who I know mm. have a lot of knowledge in this area and everyone has a different answer. I have a good friend of mine. She's like, it's seeds. It's the, you know, manipulation of seeds in the, in the marketplace. And everybody thinks that like, you know, Monsanto is selling seeds and they've corrupted the entire industry. And the truth is, you know, I have a friend who, who, whose father invented the sugar snap pea in America. What? Wow. I know. And uh, Rod Lamborn, and he informed me, he educated me, that seeds have been patent since the 17th century, or 18th century. And I get that confused. 1800s. Either way, way longer than I would have thought. <laughs> A long time. And he said, the thing is, because everyone's like, well, farmers, they can save their seeds, and then they can regrow their crops. And it's like, that's not how farming works. Because if you grow seeds, you're not growing crops. And that's such a simple thing. Like, it's a paradigm shift in your head. You're like, oh, of course. Because once a plant goes to seed, it's no good to eat. Uh. So the seed growers and the farming people are different people. Does that make sense? It does. I'm also, like, struggling with the fact that seeds are patented. Like, <laughs> that- <laughs> so It's not just Monsanto. Yeah. It's like, if I made something, and this is the way Rod explained it to me, if I created something, if I hybridize something... I'm not talking about working in a lab and making this thing. I'm talking about, oh, this is a piece of wheat and I want to create this wheat and I put them together and I create this plentiful thing of wheat and then I make the seeds. I want to sell those seeds. Right. That's my product. Right. So, of course, I'm going to patent it. Yeah. I mean... It's my product. It doesn't make me evil. It just makes me want to make money out of what is a business. And now it's technically GMO, I guess, too, because you're... But again... Like it's right, 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 right. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. Yeah, I think these are things most people just never think of when they're eating. Which is why it gets super complicated. Mm. So for me, I think if we want to change the food system and we want good food to proliferate and farmers working in ethical ways, paying people reasonable salaries to actually produce our food, and I'm not saying we can't subsidize them because I do believe in subsidies to, a, to an extent. Mm. We subsidize all food anyways. Why not subsidize good food production? We need to make farmers successful. We need to make them financially sustainable as well. Mm. And so this is something people forget when they think about the cost of cheap food is your farmer is a business. It's not a hobby, mm. right? Just like you going to school. It's not altruistic or mm-hmm. teaching at school, right? You're not going to do it for the good of younger education and be like don't worry I don't need a salary here I'm, yeah right I'm doing good for the future of mankind right yeah, totally like, I want to yeah. go on holiday yeah <laughs> <laughs> which I am <laughs> I want to yeah. have kids someday and put clothes on their backs yeah I want to take them on vacation and so farmers want that too and farmers have struggled because they haven't seen increases in some of the products that they've done in years mm-hmm. so as inflation's rising 7% they said this year you know is products raising 7% Maybe in some cases, yes. But is the farmer getting that cut? Probably not. Mm. And so I had this conversation, ironically, with an um, Irish farmer, uh, Trevor Harris, mm. down near Waterford. And um, did you meet him? I didn't. Okay. He's amazing. He's a guru of biodynamic farming and regenerative farming. Food in Ireland really blew me away. I was not expecting how amazing it was there, yeah. It, you can find some pretty incredible stuff. It's an agrarian society, right? Yeah. Um, what's interesting um, in the south I gotta do my geography in the southeast of Ireland is one of the most prolific barley growing regions in the world okay so barley needs as I have learned a certain climate and environment certain amount of sunshine certain amount like everything does but this is one of the most prolific barley growing regions and most of the product that's grown there is grown industrially and it's harvested all at once, and it's shipped out somewhere and sold as animal feed. So barley, traditionally, on top of making bread, what are you making from it? You're making bread and whiskey. Mm-hmm. So most Irish whiskey, guess what it's made from? Barley. No! <laughs> American wheat, a corn? African corn. <laughs> African corn. Yeah, yeah. So they're making their barley. African corn. Not everybody. And they're shipping it out as animal feed. And they're importing corn to make their whiskey. It's a great system, eh? 
It's crazy. That's so strange. So talk to Trevor, who grows biodynamic barley, if you can imagine. So this is like, you know, it's one step above organic, right? Mm. And his whole point, his whole raison d'etre, is that he runs a business. He's got, I think he's got six kids, a lot of kids. Uh, and we had a long discussion about the fact that he wouldn't farm the way he does unless it made financial sense. Yeah, of course. And he's figured out a way, even farming with the most regenerative means possible, doing the things the way they're meant to be done, paying people well, he's making money. And that's... That's amazing. Core. <laughs> exactly. And if he can be a model for other people to say, you don't need mm. to um, do things the way you've always done them because you think it's the most efficient. I think in a lot of cases, farming also gets done that way because it's easy. And that sounds like a cop-out, but I think if you're a barley farmer and you can cut all your, harvest all your barley at once, pack it all up into a thing, ship it and just get money, it's like, as opposed to trying to sell it at farmer's markets, farmer's markets are really hard selling it to the, like, that's hard. That's really hard. If you can do it all at once yeah, to some course. big commodity group that's going to take it all and give you a flat price, you're like, that's what I'm going to do. Do you have all those talks cataloged so like anybody can go... Um, some of them, yeah. some of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're still a small organization, so uh -huh. you know we were doing a lot of that stuff ourselves. So yeah, no, a lot of it's online. Okay, for sure. And the next symposiums in Calgary? Yeah, so we're doing a in-person symposium in September in Calgary. Um, it's really the B two B in the hospitality industry, so uh -huh. it's chefs and restaurateurs and producers getting together to network and create community and yeah. inspire each other. And I think it's you know it's a great time because everybody's really interested in getting together again. Is it like possible for someone to purchase a ticket and go if they're not in that world or? Yeah, I yeah? mean, so yeah. I mean, primarily the people that come do work in the restaurant and the hospitality industry, but we get a lot of people who come who are interested and curious about how the restaurant industry works or trying to dip their toes into like how they can get involved mm. in the restaurant industry. You know, pre-COVID, I had people call me constantly like, I'm interested in getting involved with food. What was your journey? How do I get involved with food? How do I get a it's job? very broad. <laughs> Which is so different from when I started where people were like, why are you working in food? Yeah. You need to get out of the restaurant industry, get your job, you know, get a job doing something else. So that was encouraging. I don't know now because again, we're having this staff shortage, but I do still think, but I mean, food, people are passionate about it. It's how we survive. Yeah, and like uh, pop culture actually moves things. I was I just said this the other day with the chef I had on in Prague. The one of the most popular shows in the States right now is The Bear and it's a show about people in the kitchens. And so, you know I do I, I also find that encouraging, you know, through like Bourdain or all the the food media of the past 10, 15 years, I do think that's nudging things in a good direction. Um, I'm going to obviously link to to the talks and to the symposium and everything so people can find that. And I'm going to let you go in a minute because I feel so bad that we have food in front of us. But I, I wanted to talk very briefly about wine. Ah, okay. And I'm going to preface this. This is so uncool and I'm very embarrassed to say this, but I have like, I actually have a, a lot of food issues that I generally just power through because I write about food and I talk about food. But quite recently I was at 35, like finally like diagnosed with like, oh, like you are actually allergic to all these things and it's caused this issue and it's very uncool, I know. But one of the things is I could never drink wine. Mm. Um, I think the last time before two weeks ago, I was like 18, so half my life ago. Um, because I would get really flush, um, like my throat would get itchy and, and a bit tight. It just wasn't pleasant. We went to a place in Slovenia, Kastarna uh, Skarucna, this little town above uh, Ljubljana. I had read like the guy who owns it's quite eccentric. Sometimes the cooks are too drunk to cook and it's wild. We went there, took a taxi, dropped us off. It was closed. There was no bus back. Very long story short, he ends up like stumbling out of a house, like very hungover, saying like, we're closed, but I'm gonna cook for you. We stayed for nine hours, mm. just eating and drinking. And he is a, a champion of um, local, like unfucked with natural wines. I drank wine for hours, 
unbelievably in my mind because I've like I normally can't drink it. And he's explaining, well, normally there's all these fillers, there's sugars and tannins, and or, I'm like, I thought it was grapes. Uh, so <laughs> I'm just curious about sort of like your work with wine and if you're buying, I guess, a, a generic wine in the states, like uh, I don't know, footprints or something. There's like a footprint on the label, and it's and it's quite cheap, like. What is in there and how, what is different when you buy a natural wine? So that's also a complicated question okay, because sorry. there's um, unfortunately no uh, regulatory body that defines natural wine. And even in the context of the natural wine community, it's it's debatable. Ah. Um, in Europe, it's it's become a very big market. And typically it's because experts are working with producers that know wines are being produced in a natural way. So I don't know if you know, I actually have a wine company called yes, Slime this Wine. this is why I ask. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm not as knowledgeable as my partner, okay. uh, Emily Harmon, who's actually a sommelier and an expert in this area. Yeah. And we don't necessarily like to say we're a natural wine company, but that we work with producers that are working uh, with environmentally sound standards in ethical ways. Again, all of those practices that I believe in that I want for producers. Mm. Um, so it's a little bit about knowing who your producer is. And so we select producers that we find their wines to be quality wines, but also we understand that they're working in as low intervention ways as possible. So as a consumer, you kind of have to trust that we know what we're doing and the wines that we're selling are of that standard. Um, I would say in North America, there's pockets of places that are starting to promote more natural wine practices. Um, there's a, an organization that does the raw wine fair. Mm. I know that they've done stuff in New York and they've done stuff in um, Montreal. They bring together producers that are working in this way. But I think your average Jane, uh, you know, going into a store is not going to know. Because yeah. the thing is, because it's unregulated, and in most countries there is no obligation for a wine producer to actually put on the label what's in the wine, which is like crazy. That is really crazy. Like you think, you know, if you bought a piece of cheese here, like you'd have to know exactly what was in it. You bought like box of cereal, like every single ingredient has to be in it. Not with wine. So I think there's like 47, like, I don't know. There's like crazy amounts of things that can be in your wine that are not on the label that you have no idea exist. In terms of your allergies, I'm going to suggest there's there's a couple things. So so most people say it's sulfites. Mm. Th that's debatable as I understand it. People say, well, no, that's just um, a red herring because um, huh. sulfites also occur naturally. And so even in an organic wine with no intervention, you can still get sulfites in the wine. Okay. But that's not to say it's not true. I'm not, I'm not a dietitian, so don't take my word for this. Right, right, right. But the bigger one that I've learned, and I don't know if this is uh, more prevalent in more industrial produced wines, is actually histamines. And so you should look into oh. that because it sounds like with the throat closing and the itchiness, yeah. it could be histamines. And that's present in most wines as well. Ah, interesting. Yeah, the additives is so crazy to me. I guess like anything else, like it, it would be why you pump something full of corn or sugar. It's just cheaper to produce larger volume of something with a cheaper quality ingredient. Or well, and it also goes back to the conversation we were having. It aids the industry that's overproducing stuff because you're ah. giving it a way to get rid of it. That is fascinating. Um, okay, let's eat. Thank, okay. thank you so much. Uh, it's it's a privilege for me to to get to sit with people like you and for you to give me the time of day and to share a meal like this. This is this is great. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for coming to meet me. It was a real pleasure to talk to you as well. Cheers. Yeah. All right, everyone. That is a wrap on episode two hundred and eighty of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Oh man, I had a wonderful. What is it? Like 37 days on the road. Went to so many cool places. I think we clocked in eight countries over that time. Wow, that is a lot. A lot of moving around. I'm sore, I'm tired, but I'm happy. So hopefully you've enjoyed these conversations from the road. I might take a little bit of a break here in the first couple weeks of August um, to get some things done for my, my work work but then to also work on some articles. I just had a piece published in AAA that is the company that helps you when you break down on the road. I wrote a piece for their Northeast edition about Asian American and Southeast Asian 
food places in the Northeast, some of my favorites and my recommendations based on the time that I've spent in that part of the world. So I have that linked on my social media. Go check that out. My link tree always has all that stuff, but I have a new piece to work on for them. So I'll tell you more about that when that's ready. And then I've pitched a couple of cool things from the road. So you can keep track of all this stuff by following me on Instagram or Facebook. Both of those are the Voyages of Tim Vetter. And if you have any recommendations for West Virginia, Virginia, Tennessee area, where I will be road tripping, you can reach out to me at thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail.com. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. As always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very soon.